Welcome to Fernway Insights, where prominent leaders and influencers shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector discuss topics that are critical for executives, boards, and investors. Fernway Insights is brought to you by Fernway Group, a firm focused on working with industrial companies to make them unrivaled segment of one leaders. To learn more about Fernway Group, please visit our website at fernway.com. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Paolo Badesi. I'm a senior vice president of Fernway Group, and I welcome you to another episode of the Fernway Insights podcast. Today, we are back talking about Disruption 2.0 with our guest, Chetan Dube, who is the founder of New York City-based artificial intelligence company, Amelia. Chetan is an Indian-born and moved to the United States after college to become an assistant professor at New York University in 1992. He left academia and started Amelia as information technology firm IPsoft in 1998, growing it to about 100 million in revenue by 2020. Chetan is a widely recognized speaker on autonomics, cognitive computing, and the future impact of a digital workforce. In 2018, he was accepted into the Forbes Technology Council which is an invitation-only community for world-class CIOs, CTOs, and technology executives. With that, Chetan, welcome to our podcast. I'm very excited to have you here, and I really look forward to having uh, these conversations about artificial intelligence. Paolo, it's an absolute privilege to be partaking in Fernway's podcast. Great, thank you. Let's get right into it. You've been quite vocal in the past about highs and lows of AI, which of course has gone through various stages of development. Can you tell us about the current state and what's the play of AI in today's world, industrial? You know, this is obviously, we are all familiar with the winter of AI and the father of artificial intelligence, John McCarthy, said that human level AI turned out to be a lot harder than anticipated. And that's very true. But if you talk to the NTT global CTO, he will tell you that most type providers have done a great job of faking it. So IVRs, intelligent voice recognition, failed. So if you talk to NTT CIO, he'll say, you guys did a great job of putting a thin veneer of very shallow neural network, which is basically a classifying engine in the front of it. And you still make me press 17, except that you make it sound as if you heard what I said, but you just translate it to a number and you press that with no understanding of what my problem or inability to solve what my problem is. And there is some truth to the edict of, again, I'm giving credit to Chris who said, we're living in a world of IVR 2.0. And there is some truth to it. But I think today, as you asked me about the current state of art, we are just at the tipping point where AI technologies have come off that classification, IVR decision tree kind of where the containments are realistically only in single digits to actually moving towards human level comprehension. That's where we are today. And it's a very, very profound tipping point in uh, 
technology. And McKinsey has written about that because if when this real AI, let's call it, you know, the ex-CEO of Accenture used to call it artificial artificial intelligence. So the, I think when this real AI really starts to take shape, McKinsey's research points out the fact that there's a there's a potential of 45% margin enhancement as opposed to a 35% margin compression if you're not adopting digital models of delivery. And that's really starting to become a reality in the industry. So we are at that tipping point. It's a very interesting juncture that we have arrived at in AI. Uh, fantastic. And so with that in mind, what's the frontier of like, machines capabilities today? What businesses are the most impact? Kind of the most impact out of that. Yeah. The businesses impacted, I think, and what is the capability of the AI today? AI just has started to cross the chasm between classification that we were talking about to comprehension. And if you if you are a Turing purist, as we are, and you have read Turing's research, you would say that you know, seven over seven decades ago, he had started his thesis by saying, I propose for you to consider the question. Can machines think? What if such sincerely thinking machines were possible? What would your business look like if you had such sincerely thinking machines? If you look at World Economic Forum, it's clearly ordained by them by, that by 2025, and McKinsey actually agrees, 52% of the workforce is going to be digital. Half of your workforce is going to be digital. And so we are starting to see this, this evolutionary curve, which is what you have written about, actually, and I beg your forgiveness because I feel like preaching to the choir whenever I talk to you. <laughs> there, is, there is a digital Darwinistic curve that is really in play right now where you have a choice. If you're a big corporation, you have a choice. Are you going to be a digital experimentalist? Well, you're not going to be a digital ignorant entity because there's no such thing currently. But are you going to be a digital experimentalist? Are you going to dip your toe and say, oh, look, I've done a little POC and I've checkmarked my digital strategy and look, I've got that. Are you going to be a digital catalyst in the middle that you would have identified a line of business and you would actually be attacking that? Or are you going to be a digital front runner? And are you going to look at an overhaul of your end-to-end processes with an entirely digital model of delivery powered by hybrid workforce. And if you look at that, the evolution curve and the returns curve is very, very steep on the, the distance between the digital front runner and the digital laggard. Uh, the returns that they are getting is so tremendous. As we talked about the spread, about 45% margin enhancement in the digital front runner, that the digital laggards face existential crisis. The risk curve, interestingly, is the inverse parabola in this case, because the risk of non-adoption, ironically, is far higher than the risk of early adoption in these things. So there is some truth to the edict that if your competition has got AI and you don't, you're dead. And I think that's what we are starting to see in the marketplace, What which industries, BFSI, ironically, who are the most risk averse. And I was talking to one of the chief operating officers of one of the largest investment banks here, who just told me that I was wondering why BFSI has led this so much. And he explained to me this risk curve that I was just talking to you about, that the risk curve is actually the inverse parabola of the, the rewards curve in this case. So the rewards curve is going like this, then the risk curve is coming down like that, where BFSI, who does risk analysis, banking, finance, insurance, 
are able to clearly see, wait a minute, the risk of my early adoption is far less than the risk of my not adopting such disruptive technologies. And they are actually leaders. Nowadays, particularly post-COVID, we find the healthcare vertical has also really started to come along very, very fast. And what would be very surprising to you is in the last nine months, we have seen a surge in hospitality industry. Now, it could be the great resignation. It could be the great reshuffle. It could be the paucity of 19 million jobs vaporizing out of Americas in, from April last year. It could be a combination of all the factors that you are much more articulated talking about. But all I know is the end outcomes are that the hospitality from the biggest chains that you can think about have started running to, and by, by the way, they're not just talking about the internal IT. They're talking about customer care. Customer care in an area where hospitality matters, where the net promoter score really does make a difference between whether you would select one hotel or the other hotel. And interestingly, you asked about like, where are we in the evolution of AI? The biggest yardstick, the biggest yardstick that I can share with you is that when do you think we would have actually shifted over to this hybrid model of delivery? Cost, it's a given. Yeah, digital cost, I wanted to be able to address the cost part. Okay, I will have digital models of delivery. They're going to be 45, 50% cost will be taken out. But Paolo, is it not the quality of customer care? That's been the gating factor thus far. So I'll share with you empirical data. Yesterday, 212,000 calls came in to Telefonica in Peru. The NPS characteristic delivered by digital agents was 11 points superior than the NPS characteristic delivered by humans. Now that's a tipping point of technology. That's the point at which you are now starting to get, to exceed human levels of comprehension, exceed human levels of customer care and human levels of NPS. And I think that's where you know that the technology is at a tipping point where you can start to see that the companies that adopt digital modes of delivery and foster a hybrid workforce will have such positional advantage in their cost of delivery and in the quality of customer care that they'll be able to edge out the ones that don't, that haven't adopted such models. Your point on hospitality is actually really, you know, high. it's a high opening to me because like, let's say so far, I've heard of OCR at least three or four years back being the, you know, the big area where Lots of banks were pushing, and but hearing the switch, getting to hospitality where digital agents are actually creating even a better customer experience for in a sector where you know the human touch is actually very important. That really opens a way where many others industries are similar to hospitality when it comes to customer care. Anything that is consumer related could be could be the next next avenue for AI for growing. Right. That that's a, a, absolutely and consumers, in fact. You, you know, obviously, one of the consumer industries happens to be, and it's on, on fire right now, is gaming. Not, not that it is the I would advocate somebody to, but gaming. You'd be surprised how many of these gaming entities that are coming up are actually truly starting off the blocks with a hybrid and a digital model of customer care. So really fascinating to see. I mean, obviously, you've seen certain banks come along, the Sterling Banks and the others that are just completely digital mode of delivery. But these gaming entities that are actually starting off from saying like, you know, now that it's getting legalized in different states, and I think you, you find their entire customer care and their ability to be able to deliver 
prompt services and prompt advice about which bets and what odds there are. All of that is being powered by digital solutions. So, you know, the verticals are very rapidly changing and evolving, we could say. The old guys, now I can call them like because three years, five years in the, into this, the BFSI guys are obviously prodding ahead, but we find that healthcare is particularly the post the last 20 to 24 months has really accelerated. We find hospitality is coming along very strong in the last nine months. And of course, retail has now become, as you just pointed out a moment ago. And along that line, if you fast this forward, and if you look at five, 10 years out, what, let's say, unthinkable changes today AI, you guess could bring? I mean, I guess you don't have a crystal ball, but if you if you had it, what would you say? <laughs> well, I I'm a simple math guy. I'll tell you with a degree of certainty and a degree of confidence. I can tell you that in the next five years, you will pass somebody in the hallway, and you will not be able to distinguish if it's a human or an android. You are going to be at a stage where the hybrid workforce would have taken shape. It would be very much look. The physical dexterity is getting there. The rendering, two-dimensional rendering is always fairly good. Nowadays, you see that in three-dimensional rendering is also getting, and you are able to control every one of your facial and sentiment analysis. And there are certain sophisticated bad OCC models that control all your emotional display and how you display your emotions. The only frontier that has been left in trying to get to that elusive during Horizon where truly thinking machines would be possible has been the human neocortex. If you can really start to emulate and abstract what's coming out of human brains, then you can actually really start to get these AI systems start to become very close to and become truly indistinguishable from humans. And that's the world that you'll be in in the next five years. Very exciting. On the other hand, a bit scary. (laughs) But (laughs) thank you. You know, interestingly, the scary part, I will tell you, today you have some people with fingers on the red button and other things. And I was asked by, you know, the chairman of the World Economic Forum about ethics and AI. If we are responsible in coding ethics into these AI systems and good values into this AI system, the morality into these AI systems, what is good, what is right and what's wrong, And if 52% of the workforce is actually going to be on the good side where it's ethically programmed, I'm a big believer as an algorithmic practitioner myself, I'm a big believer in the fact that algorithms generally don't stray off course. They will enforce a certain moral conduct that might even counterbalance some entropic tendencies that you certainly find today in parts of the world, particularly as we start to move towards East and Far East. So I'm, I'm a believer in the fact that not as opposed to a dystopian future, this could lead to a very utopian future where you have not only the world, world GDP, and I think we will stray from talking about the cosmic impacts because otherwise I can get lost in that. But I would, I would say even pragmatically, I think ethics and AI are a big fundamental part of our research to be able to code in good morality, good values, good ethics into the system so that they can actually understand and distinguish between the right and wrong. Who can advocate? When you actually look at bombing of a maternity ward and you look at 37 children who have lost their lives, who can advocate that that is possibly a good thing? Can anyone with a soul advocate that that's a good thing? Now, that's that's an AI system will not do that if it has been properly coded with ethics 
that tell it that like, no, these are the moral gates that you have to follow. Very interesting, Chetan. Shifting gears for a second, I found your personal journey very, very interesting. I think when you moved to the US, your goal was to become a professor of mathematics and design at New York University. And what has inspired you from shifting from academia to the IT industry and starting your own company? So, yes, I was, I came, I was in the doctorate program at the Quran Institute of Math Sciences at New York University. And my advisor at that point was Professor Dennis Shasha. I was, I remember one afternoon, it was the fall of 1998, just after the summer. On the 12th floor of Quran Institute on 251 Mercer used to be our library. And I was looking at one of my papers and that journal literally had dust on it. And it was one of those moments that I realized, which probably should have been easier for me to know, just exactly how inconsequential all of my research was, literally and metaphorically just collecting dust. And so I was restless to try and see if we could apply some of these things that I'd learned, had the privilege of learning with some of the best minds and algorithms into real systems that could make a real difference. And so I was restless to break out and I was fortunate to have a group of people from NYU that I had after that, and we formed, and IPsoft was formed. So IPsoft started as an enterprise IT supplier, and today it is Amelia, a leading enterprise conversational AI platform. Can you tell us a bit more about Amelia and some of the successes you have had with it? Yeah, IPsoft, you know, the genesis Palo always was that I... I remember, in fact, just that summer that I was talking about, I had a conversation with my advisor, Professor Dennis Shasha, who had been kind enough to share with me a book that he personally autographed that said, out of their minds. And he said, this, you would enjoy reading and this applies to you. So I don't know if it was a compliment or a banishment, but I'd say, but uh, interestingly, I, Professor Shasha, I, I remember mentioned I pronounced to him that, you know, Professor, we are studying these deterministic state machines, finite state machines, and given a couple of summers, we're modeling engineers' brains, which move very much from a state space to state space, and you can use very rigid mathematical and Markov models to be able to simulate them. Given a couple of summers, we should be able to extend this to general customer care and things that are of perhaps more profound impact we can make. And I still remember his expression that summer when he just shook his head and said, did you not know that the father of artificial intelligence gave up on the problem? John McCarthy saying it turned out to be a lot harder than anticipated. And But you are a profound ignorance of the challenges that lie ahead. And you, and you set sail with that purest mindset of being able to study and track down what comes out of our human brains and to be able to see if you can actually get closer and closer to the Turing and Ingba. And that's what has been our journey throughout. Now, of course, we started out by looking at system engineers' brains because they are much more deterministic. And so they move in a very set ways. And they are, even if you're looking at a network interface problem, you're able to do netstat, you're able to look at ifconfig, and then you're able to look at the interface packets, and you're able to find the route gateway where the problem could exist. So you move in a very deterministic way. So we started off on the autonomic side of the house, but our pursuit has always been rather purists on trying to see if we can continue this journey of emulating how humans think. And that's where we have reached now. And so it hasn't been a couple of summers as I had ignorantly speculated to my advisor. And it has been 21 summers. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> and when you, Amelia, you can be the better gauge of how close we have really started to come to that human level of comprehension. And as you say, we are approaching a tipping point, right? Where more and more companies are actually adopting automation, cognitive technology. What's next for Amelia? I think, I think what's next, you will find that the core is getting, the core of what industries are offering, what we are seeing is Paolo. And I think, again, this is somewhere where your knowledge dwarfs mine, but this is uh, talking to the CEO of the second largest bank in the United States. The, the basically, his assertion, giving credit to him, mentioned that, look, what is the core of banking? The core of banking, is it not getting commodity? Do you really get a very different experience from uh, a JPMC, uh, morning, JP Morgan Chase, or from Bank of America, or from a city bank when you buy mortgage? You're getting fairly the same kind of rate. So you're getting five one adjustable arm. You're going to get about ten one adjustable arm. You're going to get about the same kind of uh, rates, a fractional point of differences. So is the core of banking, or, or even if you're interested, let's talk about the most rudimentary money market and other accounts. Are you not getting about the same kind of an interest rates or something? So is it that the core of banking not getting commoditized? So why would you choose a JP Morgan Chase over a Bank of America or over, let's say, any other Citibank? Why would you do that? According to the CEO, the differentiation, as the core starts getting commoditized, as the maturity happens in the industry, and the core and the offerings start getting commoditized, and there are certain innovative products that obviously arrive for the differentiation, but the differentiation starts to move towards the edge. And in this case, the differentiation that's moving towards the edge is customer care. The quality of customer care that you will get when you bank with the JP Morgan Chase as opposed to a Citibank, how different can it be? How rich can it be? And that's why you would choose a JP Morgan Chase over another bank. And that's where we are finding the ability for some of the top leading CEOs to start to use digital technologies and where the quality of care matters. Look, two years ago, it was, to be very direct, two years ago, it was mostly internal. Digital and AI technologies were mostly focused internally. We were talking about internal IT. We were talking about internal password resets and the silly app, Wi-Fi and Active Directory and account unlocks and those kind of applications. That So if you had to follow, suffer through some bad technology and you were internal, we really didn't care that much about it. We would let you suffer through five different ways of saying your password reset before you could actually get your password done. And you, you, would, you would suffer through it and that was fine. Now, the big thing that has happened in the last 24 months is that the switch from internal to external, that part has a completely different change the game. Now, the quality of care matters. It's no longer just a cost equation. It's no longer, yes, you are getting the cost as a kind of table stakes. You want to be able to like get a better, more efficient model of delivery than even a nearshore, forget a nearshore, offshore model. So you want to be able to trumpet that model of delivery by at least like about 30% or something plus that. that. That's great. That's fantastic. But a big focus has now become the quality of customer care. And that's what has changed in the last 24 months as you move to switch from the internal to external because external we just discussed a moment ago that the quality of care matters because that's how you're going to differentiation having moved to the edge. Aren't you going to be able to retain and attract new customers at JP Morgan Chase if you are 
providing a differentiated kind of care, a better kind of quality of care. No, and that's Absolutely. what I asked. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And thank you. Now switching gears again, at firmly, especially industrial enterprises, mid-sized industrial companies, we see that many of them, when it comes to new AI technology, new digital technologies, they really go with a sort of a wait and watch type of mind. So from your perspective, who you're an insider in the AI world, what would you like enterprises of this size, this sector to do more for a true digital transformation to take place? I think having, look, de-risking is a big consideration for any of these enterprises. And how do you de-risk the adopt? Look, the question is no longer about do you go digital or not? That, that debate is done. Yeah, I think we're done. But the question is how do you go digital? And how do you go digital to optimize your returns and to be able to de-risk any of the fees that are in any such change are just inherent? That's where, as I have interacted with a lot of your lead thinkers at Formway Group, your group is in a category of one. You have the practitioners that can de-risk the digital journey, having done that over decades for different enterprises and having realized the kind of returns that you can do with your gain-sharing model, which is a very important thing, by the way, and where your group, again, distinguishes itself as opposed to a typical consulting model, which says, ah, it doesn't matter if you end up with a return ROI or not, I will collect. You are willing to stick your neck out on a gain-sharing model, as I've learned from your CEO. And that is really how you best de-risk it. You must, if your if you're digital transformation expert can come along and help you, one of the biggest elements of risk is the selection of the right technologies. If you don't have the right technology, look, it's a digital human. You are so discerning when you hire a human being, are you not? But then how would you hire a digital human being, which is going to be 52% of your workforce, without even a care that, ah, yeah, whatever, we'll stick it. No, it will make a big difference in how your product will be manufactured and how, what kind of quality of customer care you'll be able to render and what growth you will be able to. Origination itself is, there's a law firm in the South, one of the largest in injury in the South, where 17% of the origination is happening through digital. That all depends on the kind of digital agents that you hire. And that, again, is an area where known, experienced, distinguished practitioners such as your group can de-risk the adoption of digital technologies. And also, more importantly, not just your mess for less, they actually can look at the process and the supply chains and redo that which is a very important process optimized. This is the best part, best time of digital transformation should be accompanied with not just replacing parts of the wage arbitrage, labor solutions with digital solutions, but or taking assets that are sitting in a person's internal data centers and moving it to the cloud. That's not digital transformation. The digital transformation is to be able to look at your entire supply chain, look at your end-to-end STP straight through processing, and to be able to achieve that end-to-end transformation, your process optimization can only be done by the minds such as that, that I've had the privilege of meeting at Fernbay Group, which is very important for people to actually tap into. 
You're being very nice. Thank you. You you were touching upon this at the very beginning of the call. What are the threats for companies who don't make that switch? Who they're not fast enough in in adapting to these new digital technologies coming up? Well, there is truth, um, Paolo, to this. You know, we're living in a times of this digital Darwinistic time that we talked about. You have two choices. You either innovate fast or you die slowly. You, you make a choice. It's not a question. It's You can almost see that everywhere. You can see that the 40% of the global 2000 in the last 12 years are not global 2000. You know, I mean, I think you can see this, uh, this transformation happening right before your eyes. And I'm not, uh, some of the theories of Elon Musk you may or may not agree with, but one theory that you might agree with is that if your competition is AI and you don't, you're dead. The models of delivery are so far, you can't compete against a 45% margin enhancement and against a 35% margin compression, as estimated by McKinsey. I mean, the papers that you wrote, it's the, you can't compete when the spread is so big between digital models of delivery and human models of delivery. You don't want, and humans have to elevate to higher forms of creative expression. You have to take your human assets and make them go up the chain. Because that's where the differentiation will lie, coming up with innovative new products. Uh, we have seen insurance companies that have actually said, oh, now that we have digitized our models of delivery of the basic customer care and basic origination as well, why don't we actually come in with just-in-time insurance? Why don't we come in with a risk-adjusted profile insurance? Why don't we come in with an insurance that changes as you are skiing at a say, your insurance profile changes or you're driving too fast, your insurance profile changes? Why wouldn't we, as opposed to if you're a de-risked person? All of these things are all only possible by human creativity, where humans outshine machines. And that's where we have to be able to leverage our organizations to start thinking about elevating their humans up that value chain and for forming differentiated products that can make a different experience for the workforce, as opposed to getting them mired into doing the same road tasks that can be done much more efficiently by machines. Makes sense. And I think you just came up with a new acronym, D or D, digital or die. You've mentioned a few times talent, right? How talent is important to this. And just thinking about the media for a second, how have you addressed, you know, talent gaps, which is a topic we keep hearing, you know, across all companies we, we deal with? Yeah, and I think, you know, talent is now particularly at this stage when you have a great paucity of qualified talent sometimes. And, you know, I think it would be great resignation and other things as well. The You... You have to digitally encoded systems, and I'm a big believer in the fact that programmatically encoded systems and having the embedded intelligence that captures all these different facets allows you to be able to de-risk even the talent gap, some things that I'll give you the largest life insurance company here had 34% in attrition in their local centers here. In, in U.S. centers, by the way, 34% in the last year. Now, obviously, if you had, and now imagine the flight risks and imagine the knowledge risks that associate with 34% attrition. Now, for the talent, if you have these embedded systems, one of the reasons why they are so keen on digital models of delivery is because when you embed the knowledge into these digital systems, that talent doesn't take flight and the talent gaps can be bridged for you to be able to have those effective models for delivery. And we are seeing that more and more so nowadays 
that de-risking has become a big focus for acceleration into digital models of delivery. Look, this is very interesting, very interesting conversations. We are getting to the end. But before we close, I wanted to ask you, you have been invited in a very prestigious community, the Forbes Technology Council, which is, of course, as we said before, is a very prestigious place where only the leading CIOs, CTOs are actually invited. How does it feel? It's a humbling experience. I don't know if I belong in such communities. I'm just an egg-headed mathematician who's trying to see if he can apply the knowledge of algorithms that he went to school for, for designing systems that can alleviate man from mundane chores. And so it's a real, I'm not sure if I'm worthy of such honors, but I do know that I'm passionate about, you can increase the world GDP and the productivity of the world by 40% by introducing real, and again, I emphasize real thinking machines. And when you do that, does it not become just a problem of redistribution? of that wealth that you have created. To be able to come up with a concept of the minimum viable incomes and universal viable income, which can allow man not to, is man not shackled by subsistence today? Are you at a mind at even your level, Paolo, how much of your mind is spent in creative thinking? Are you not spending 75% of the time just doing ordinary chores like crossing the street, driving the, driving the car, taking out the garbage or balancing your checkbook or making your bill payments. All of these things, 25, what a colossal waste of mind like you. <laughs> Not to have given the freedom to be able to just engage in creative expression. Is man not shackled by ordinary tasks that occupy a majority of our days and subsistence which governs our existence? Can these machines come along in this hybrid society and lift those shackles, break those shackles away from man and let man soar in dimensions of creative expression, something which man is best, the human brain, I've more and more I've studied I'm in absolute awe of how much it is capable of creative thinking. So that's the world I think we will emerge into. And I'm very passionate about it. And these honors, I don't know if I'm worthy of these honors. I'm still going from nine o'clock in the night till about two o'clock in the morning, I'm working on algorithms. And that's a passion of mine to be able to see if we can reach that elusive Turing horizon, which has troubled us for the last for the last seven decades. I read this thesis two and a half year, two and a half decades ago. And every night it haunts me that question. Can truly thinking machines be possible? Chetan. It's been an incredible honor and pleasure having you here with you with us today. Thank you. No, the privilege is mine. Thank you very much, Paolo, for having me on your podcast. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Fernway Insights. Please visit fernway.com for more podcasts, publications, and events on developments shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector.